think everything that's going on in AI is a big deal. Of course, there's a hype cycle. And of course, it's out ahead of itself and out over its skis. But this is another inflection point or another step change or whatever word you want to use. We're in another gear now. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Today, I am welcoming Kevin Miller to the show. Kevin, I always like to have do a little intro, particularly because if you search Kevin Miller on LinkedIn, it's just going to be a grab bag. So which one are you and what are you doing? Ledge, it's very nice to meet you. Thank you so much for having me. I serve as the CEO of a company called Legal Sifter. We're a global software and service company that sits on a platform of AI and human expertise based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but we have folks all over the place. And I am a trained and licensed attorney, inactive by background, but I ran from the law 25 years ago and went and got an MBA and have been a part of and been leading global businesses in a variety of capacities and now in at Legal Sifter as the CEO. So thrilled to be here. Yeah, awesome. I mean, talk about a little bit the preamble, I guess, is the legal tech space, you know, which is an interesting thing. And I love this idea of successfully merging human services with technology and SaaS services, because you are often told, particularly in a context where you have to raise some money, that you got to choose one way or the other. And oh, by the way, we're not going to fund a services business. We're only fund SaaS and you got to have a 90% gross margin. But you seem to have threaded the needle on that. So I'd love to know that story. Yeah. So I, part of it is driven by the experience that I had coming from other organizations. I've worked for three other organizations prior to this. Very successful with public in 99, a company called Free Markets that eventually was bought. It was in the sourcing space and it was eventually bought by Ariba and is now part of SAP and Accenture today. Lives on very successfully. Then I helped build an online university, which was wild and woolly. That business was bought by Goldman Sachs. And then I spent almost nine years at a safety and technology business that had hardware, software services, and machine learning algorithms that predicted injuries in the workplace before they occurred. And we grew that business from about 60 to $200 million. I was the chief operating officer, very global. And I think there are two themes in all three of those experiences. One, we were driving a lot of change. All of the things that we were selling or offering were, were ran counter to the typical way you buy stuff in that space, education, safety, and procurement. And then second, all of those organizations, even the education one, had multiple disciplines wrapped up under one product offering or major subscription offering. And you had to take all those disparate disciplines and smush them together in a simple way to solve a problem for a client that heretofore was unsolvable. And so I've always just been a part of organizations that integrated multiple functions and I've been in many conversations where are we a software company or a services company? And I think, frankly, the barriers, things always go in cycles. The barriers to vertical integration have just come down so dramatically over the last 20 years. And frankly, the companies of the future are folks that can vertically integrate. And we don't need to look any further than the Amazons and the Netflixes of the world who really changed industries by presenting solutions that heretofore are just not possible unless you're going to vertically integrate. So from our perspective, we think this is what we should be doing. It's not an exception. So talk about vertical integration, just so you know, we set the baseline on that you know, vocabulary set for the audience. So for us, and you mentioned it, we legal sifter. So what do we, the stump speech is contracts are the most important document in global commerce. 
and they are universally a pain. They are a pain for all of us to read and negotiate and a pain to keep track of. And the market for the last 20, 30 years, to solve that pain, you have to buy software. Now you can buy software with some AI or you buy a service. You go to your law firm, you go to a consultant. You can buy some expertise. You can buy the best lawyer on a certain contract in the world. And it's up to the client to take all four of those disciplines, software, now AI, expertise, and labor, and switch them together in a way that helps them solve those fundamental problems. I've got to read and negotiate these things all the time, and I got to keep track of them. And it turns out that clients bend metal for a living. They deliver service. They write code. They, they don't curate and negotiate contracts for a living. And they just want an integrated kind of thing that gets them to a happier place and solves their pain. And we just know from all the, the, the shortcomings of law firms and consultants and AI alone and software alone, that you can't get there for a client unless you switch those things together in a seamless experience to the client. So when I say vertical integration, we have a software organization. We have a data science organization for AI. We have a content development team for expertise. Our tool gives advice inside of on contracts. We have people. We have lawyers and paralegals that actually help do the work for our clients. And so we've vertically integrated. We've got all four of those functions, those disciplines in-house, and we smush them together into programs and subscriptions that actually relieve contract pain. And we believe that for all the clients who aren't buying from us, they're having to piece that together for themselves and they're having a lot of trouble. I think there's, I don't know if I have the discipline or the uh, acronym right, but is it CLM, Contract Life Cycle Management? Contract Life Cycle Management. Yeah, well done. So there's 250 plus contract life cycle management software companies out there trying to help people wrangle some of these problems. And the challenge is, even though a lot of the software is really quite good, uh, the challenge is, is that the clients, you know, if you think of that as a car, that software, the clients are not in a position to car. It's like they can't drive a stick shift. And so, you know, the software is not the challenge. The challenge is you have to support that software with expertise. You have to support it with labor. Some of the software has AI, some doesn't. You have to support it with the right AI in order to really solve the pain points that we're attacking in the contract lifecycle. So clients are left buying the software and then struggling to implement and on and maintain. Which is frankly what happens with all major enterprise software of any, you could buy any point solution and go, oh yeah, it's going to solve all my problems. I have no idea what to do with it. And when I turn it on, nothing magic happens. That, that happens all the time. And then you have, I'll just get a, an, the ERP does 80% of the things, 80% is good. And I'm not sure which ones. And anyway, that's hard to use. And yeah, I should rip the guts out of my business to put that in place for a year. And then you have on the other side, you can go, well, you know, I have 150 different point solutions charging my credit card every month and none of those talk to each other. And it's really hard. And then you also notice that I need to change human behavior. And I don't, in fact, know even what to do with that. And it's in nobody's best interest who works for me to spend their time on things that are not their KPI, which is implementing software. Yeah, like none of the stuff has actually to do with what one of those solutions solve. Yeah, in my last company, we implemented Salesforce. I'm a big Salesforce fan, been using it in all the companies. And we use it here at LegalSifter. And we did a, what we thought was a perfect implementation in that last company, because I'd done it before. And we did everything right, we brought everybody in. And then a year in, we still didn't have the uptake on the software. And what we realized was that half of our sales team couldn't type over 15 words a minute. 
So it slowed them down. And so what's the point? The point is, it's exactly what you just said. The software is just a portion of the overall solution that you have to put in place to get you to whatever objective you're trying to get to. And if you think you're going to buy a piece of software and get yourself there, unfortunately, you're, you're going to struggle. And so let's at least touch on because AI is like all of a sudden everybody likes AI, right? Let's talk about like how we are going to take big, complicated documents and essentially use machine intelligence to pull out insights, to look at risk factors, you know, all those things. And then obviously then there's the generative side of, Hey, now I couldn't do this before, but just write my liability clause for me. So that's pretty cool. Of course, can I trust it? Or is it just making stuff up? That's another issue, which I imagine you go, okay, let's have the human look at that. But yeah, just touch on those pieces of how this fits together, because there's a trust hurdle now that I think everybody's looking at and going, how much of my world can I turn over? to the robots and do it well. I think my answer starts with, we're a mission-driven organization. We want to bring affordable legal services to the world by empowering people with AI and human expertise. That's how we're going to do it. Because truthfully, it's a trillion dollar market in legal services and it should be two trillion. And it's not because we haven't given lawyers a way to scale. So it's one of the only functions, if not the only function in an enterprise that still is a full service all the time kind of answer for the most part. There are a few exceptions now out there, but in general, even though there are other, we have competitors and there are other companies out there, most of it is full service all the time. And that's because lawyers and their paraprofessionals that support them are thinking and reading and writing and advocating. That's what they do. We've given them software for years on how to organize their matters or their projects or bill us faster. But that doesn't really help us help them do the law any cheaper, faster, and better. So it's expensive and slow. Now AI appears. Here's AI. AI has been around for 70 years, and now it's finally getting to the point where we can use it. And in the last, of course, year or 10 months since the OpenAI announcement, it's been even more exciting. And what do we see? Let's start with the positives. Holy cow, in our space and in all spaces, there's a lot of creation. You're creating a lot of, in our case, documents. And you're writing a lot of prose, a lot of novel prose. These tools can help. Just Grammarly helps. And they can help a little bit more. And that's interesting. So that's pretty cool. The second thing these tools can do pretty particularly well is they can summarize stuff. Like you said, I can look across this prose and I can summarize stuff. And then third, there's a whole bunch of behind the scenes applications that help companies like us do what we do faster, cheaper, and better right? Create more algorithms, create more widgets, et cetera. Those are the three buckets. Now that's the positive. The negative is none of this can drive the plane or fly the plane by itself. It's still, you can't trust it. And that's the reality. Did we take a step forward in the last year and the last five years? Yeah, we did. But we're on much the same journey, at least in our space, that say the autopilot is in the plane. I'm still happy that after a hundred years, there's still a pilot up there flying at 6.2% of the time. And I'm okay with that. And that's the journey we're on here. The great thing is in the legal space, there's so much greenfield territory because it's still a full service business and anything we do to help scale the model is going to be terrific. So the future of the legal services is just like everything else. It's software and services, but you've got quality problems. I cannot guarantee you that I can build a robot lawyer that's better than the lawyer on your street. I can't do it, cannot do it. We're at a Carnegie Mellon University and we're one of the top AI organizations in this space. Can't do it. And second, 
you have some, particularly with these large language models and generative AI, you have major unresolved, will be resolved at some place, at some point, unresolved questions around privacy and privilege. I just can't turn over all my stuff into the ether because I've got all kinds of privacy problems, attorney-client privilege, and, and attorney-client privilege issues that are very material. So super exciting, but again, can't create a robot lawyer. It's a human-in-a-loop scenario, and it's going to be that way for a long time, we think. Could be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I took, and I do tons and tons of contracts being in the sales realm, and I've done, dear God, I have to review this 65-page MSA written in nine-point font, and that comes from the big companies. Some of them are awesome. Some we can go, oh, cool, we can stick this under terms of service and all that stuff. And I've been toying with and using in the generic template sense. Again, you have that idea of share your, please don't plug your customer data into chat GPT. Please don't do it. But from a template standpoint, I go, let me just feed this thing what it, what I have and have it make me suggestions and like, oh, hey, you know, like we think it thinks I, whatever the hell it is. Hey, you missed these two clauses seem to contradict each other. There's a nice analysis, little piece of that. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of it, but you can quickly see that that's limited. I can't go, I've got corporation X. I need to integrate the things I actually care about into that master services agreement to make sure that I'm not getting screwed. What are my risk factors here you know, relative to my exact business? This is where like a real solution with human in the loop. It's going to make a huge that's difference. That's right. And that's basically our piece is Legal Sifter has, if you'd asked me seven years ago, I got involved in this eight years ago, if you asked me seven, seven, eight years ago, what kind of company we'd be in 2023, I'd say, oh, we are the Grammarly for contracts. And while I still may want to be that, and I still do, I used to say Grammarly check for contracts, but then Grammarly came along. Now what we say is, yeah, turns out there's a reason there aren't driverless cars on the road, except in San Francisco and, and in Pittsburgh at one point. And it's still okay to have a driver. And when we accepted that, a lot of us in our leadership team have been running software and service companies for years and in some cases manufacturing. And so we leapt into this opportunity to say, you know what, we're going to be a human in a loop organization. And maybe that gives us uh, an ability to actually uh, promise results that clients can get and count on and get sticky. And as long as the margins are there and they are for us, we are, we're going to be in good shape. And so that's the journey we're on. One of our differentiating points is we say, well, we actually we do it with software or service. And if you want to do it yourself on Tuesday morning, you can do it with software on Tuesday afternoon. You can flip it to us and we'll do it for you based on your capacity. And that flexibility is what clients really need. Yeah, absolutely. It makes a lot of sense there. From a business management, financial management type of perspective, when you're vertically integrated there, you've got different pieces of the business with essentially really different gross margins. And I wonder like, how do you deal with that such that it doesn't go this business's enterprise value lower because of that challenge? A, a service business would have, if you're good, you're doing 20% net income, but a SaaS business, if you're good, you're doing 60, 70, 80%. And how do you mitigate that just as a, a reporting standard? So I heard a definition of success 25 years ago that has stuck with me that I use all the time with our team, which is Best definition of success I've ever heard is success equals, it's not mine, success equals meeting expectations. The more expectations you can meet starting with your own, the more success you're going to have. And so when I think about that conversation, it's about expectations. So I've spent the last seven or eight years as people on your, 
on the podcast can will know raising money. It's it's in the job description. I'll never stop raising money. I've accepted that. I may not like it, but I've accepted it. It's usually the least favorite part of what guys like me, guys and gals like me have to do, but I've done it and I've done it for years and we've been successful. And I didn't know this at the beginning, uh, but I learned this. When I walk into a venture capital, a, a VC's office, you know, I now realize in a way that I didn't understand before that their job is to bet big and hit certain uh, financial objectives that just may not be possible for a software and service company like ours. Now, who knows? I could be wrong. Our, we could take off. I think we're going to be, we're already a success, but I think we're going to be a 12, 13, 14 year, over year, overnight success. They have certain expectations about what that income statement looks like. If I walk into private equity or growth equity in between, they have different expectations about what that income statement looks like. So for me, this is what the business is. This is what it's going to do. And this is why it's cool and why it's good financially. Is that the profile that you are excited about investing in? Because that profile comes with a lot of benefits and maybe a little, some pros and cons. We have a very predictable business at some level. We have really strong, predictable long-term margins at some level. That may or may not be attractive to you. But am I going to get 90% GP gross margin if I become the Grammarly for contracts? Maybe one day, but that's not the profile of the business today. And so, like we recently got a great round of funding and are now backed by Character Capital Partners out of out of California. And they're a growth equity, private equity firm and growth equity. And they believe in the model. They believe in the software and service approach and the human loop approach. They are patient and they are happy with the way that financial, our income statement, what that looks like. There were many other investors, particularly VCs, that said, hey, Kevin, like the company, like what you're doing, you're building a good story. We get it. It's just not for us because I'm looking to invest in a 100% SaaS company or whatever. Expectations. You got to find that match. Yeah, you're really talking about like matching the thesis to your financing needs. And I think that we do a poor job helping entrepreneurs and, and leaders understand the different types of finance and what that even means. How many people you go like private equity, I don't even know really what that is or the wait, growth equity is a different thing or some businesses factoring my receivables makes a big, it's actually cheaper. Obviously the best way to grow is use your revenue, but you can't do that with, with a multiple. And so like finance is a thing that I think we deeply miss for the general entrepreneurial and leadership. Stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And then count me in that. I had great experiences, great mentors, great companies that I worked for, and I'm still not great at it. I, you make two classic errors. You approach the investors like clients or prospects and partners, and you give that pitch and you forget that's not what their job is. And so there's that piece. And then understanding how the story needs to fit into the thesis of their investment, uh, of their investment thesis, and how that really is different from firm to firm based on the type of firm they're after and their risk profile. That's not something that I was well healed in. I'm still quite average at it. And, but I know now a lot more than I, I used to. Right. I'm less unwise than I used to be. <laughs> I completely resonate with that. And from the standpoint of even mentorship, I'll often talk about, I'm sure it's in other episodes. Like I distinctly remember in my first real business effort, I sitting down with a mentor and, and him going, I think this is what you're doing is not going to work. And, oh, and I'm, of course, I have it all figured out. And, you know, it's like, that was a million dollar 
non-listening event. But also I know that, and we used to talk about it when we do mentorship is there's mentor whiplash. Everybody has an opinion about what the hell you're doing from their own perspective. So you, uh, <laughs> the sifter analogy really is a good one because you can go like, what advice is necessary? What context is necessary for the challenge that I'm facing now? Collect it all and figure out how to make sense out of it. And that is the thing that you, I think you build those mental models. Just that's where you can't get rid of experience. It's, there's no other way. That's the human in the loop of, of businesses. If we could stamp out startups that had 90% margin without humans and everybody's tried, that would, that'd be a real good business, but you just simply can't. And I think that's why. Yeah. I mean, people want results. They don't want more dashboards and reports. And I think legal sifters focus on getting people results. And we've had to cobble together all of these disciplines to, to be able to create something that others can't and promises results. And I think we didn't do that on day one. We didn't see it that way on day one. We had to get there. And frankly, it's been informed by so many client interactions and so many failed prospect interactions and so many prior experiences that it's gotten us to this point. We got a long way to go, but we're feeling pretty good about the direction. What are the lessons learned outside of the you know financing space? Well, I think the first one is, like I said, I, a number of the leadership team, six of us worked together in that free markets company. A couple of us worked together in my last company. So we've known each other. And of course, now this company has been around for a while. So the people that are here, we tend to have long tenured people don't turn over. I think the thing that I learned pretty early on when I first got into this, I said, I'm never going to do a startup. I never wanted to do a startup. It, it just was circumstantial that I jumped into it. It was, I knew a lot about the space. They had built some interesting things. The company had been around for two years, made no money, was out of Carnegie Mellon, had burned through a million bucks, had four people. This is back in 2015, but they had built the first AI contract review tool on the planet. You uploaded a contract, it read it, scored it, and gave some advice. And they had a little bit of traction before they put it on the shelf because they, they got worried about the legal community and other things. And I heard about it a year after they launched the little demo product. And I jumped at it because, you know, I got good advice and I figured, well, if it was going to fail in three months, I guess I'll go do something else. And I knew a little bit about this stuff. But when I came in, I was like, okay, a thousand person organization, COO, and now four. And it's okay. I need to behave differently. I need to be the entrepreneur. I need to be the startup guy. And, and that's what I was told. I was like, okay. And everybody was worried that a corporate guy and all this stuff. And I'll tell you, for 10 months, I behaved that way. It's overly flexible, overly entrepreneurial, whatever those adjectives even mean. I barely remember. I just know I didn't do all the things that had led me to some success in my prior jobs. I wasn't applying those rigorously in the new gig because I was trying to accommodate a culture and a feeling, that was a mistake. All the lessons learned that we had from running big organizations apply to small organizations. Yeah, you go faster and you make decisions faster and you don't have the bureaucracy and all those things. But hey, having a clear vision, a clear strategy, a clear plan and a clear budget, and having that aligned, that's not different. Making sure people have the capacity and confidence to do their jobs and, and rewarding them for great success and supporting them as a servant leader, that's not different. Making sure that everybody has an understanding of how to work with one another and who's who in the zoo, that's not different. It's just, you don't have as many degrees of freedom in a small company as you do a, a larger company, so you gotta be right. And so I think the, the major lesson for me was, yeah, just do all the other stuff that you used to do just in a smaller way and you'll start doing better. And when we started doing that, some of us who joined the company afterwards came from bigger companies, the company started to have success. That was a major miss by my part. And I would encourage anybody who's shifting into a startup or shifting into a small company 
coming from a large company, you're going to have a lot of people that are going to look at you with funny and tell you that you need to behave differently. And I'm here to tell you, there's a reason you, that bigger company is big. They were doing some things right. And don't forget those lessons as you come in. Yeah, it is. A, you do know, I mean, that's even like the stereotype that I can think of the Silicon Valley episodes, like where they bring in the corporate leader and he destroys the company. Everybody knows the Steve Jobs, Apple, Pepsi guy, right? I can't remember his name. And that's what people remember. And I'm like, okay, that's one story. That's one story. There are a lot of others that are not that story. Yeah, exactly. I think what you're talking about is having even the self-awareness to know which practices are successful in an organization, regardless of size. Yeah, you won't come in and immediately be able to call your assistant to make copies and fax this to somebody, will you? There's some ridiculous stuff and you don't get to play golf every day. And But at the same time, there's like just the fundamentals. And it sounds like at least over that maybe period where it didn't work, you were able to do the self-assessment of noticing that. And I, I think that self-awareness and study is so you almost have to assume, like, I know nothing. Like, I, I know things, I've had some successes, but I don't know shit. And once you realize that, I think that starts to help. Yeah, and, it, and my story goes the other way, too. When I first got here, I was really pounding the table for a short period of time about, okay, we really need a strong product roadmapping process. And we already were an agile shop. And I wanted to put an additional infrastructure on top of that based on a lot of success in prior company. And, and the truth is the company just wasn't ready for the level of scrutiny and decision-making and work. And we didn't have the capacity. We didn't have the competency. They weren't ready for that change. So we had to do it more nimbly. We had to do it simpler. It's fine. It worked out. Actually, ironically, we're now finally, all these years later, doing exactly what we're about to do. Those things that I probably tried to put in six years too early, we're doing them now. And I know they're going to work because they worked in the larger organization. And so it's just about taking those lessons not throwing them out the window, whether you come in big to small or small to big, and just applying them in the right context, but trusting if it's worked before, it, it probably will work again. So what all are those lessons from the old you know, experience? I mean, you did some major things, sold some companies, some major people, got yourself lined up and then ended up in this situation. But what did you bring along that, in fact, was applicable at maybe different scale all the time? I think those things are important. I think I already talked about trust your past experience and don't let people, if you ended up going smaller or bigger, kind of translate that and tell you that you're not what the company needs because everybody's going to tell you you're not what the company needs. And the second thing is it's all about sales, right? It that doesn't freaking matter. If you can't bring in new clients and keep them, at least for a period of time, you don't need anybody else. So that's the result you want. And to get to that result, it's all about, of course, product market fit. And so to understand that, make sure you're solving a real problem. And so many technology companies, we've seen it time and time again. It's classic advice. They're a hammer looking for a nail. I built this new widget. I built this new capability. Do you want to buy it? That's very different. It's, We're right, right. That's it, very different. It sounds like they even had that, you know, or they didn't know what to do with it. The, you saw an opportunity on the lab shelf and go, okay, yes. But that's not the way you sell that. You know, I think that's right, so Are you huge. building stuff that's actually going to solve a problem that causes personal pain, not just business pain, not just some random pain they wish they were better, personal pain for some group of clients out there in the ether. And they've got to feel like this thing is a, a pain for me, right? Simplest example. I don't know many people that liked going down to the video store. I'm dating myself. 
Blockbuster and picking up the videos and then dropping them off and everything else. And that was our world until Netflix told us we could get it through the mail. And all of us moved to that overnight because we had real personal need. And so I don't care what technology, what service, what hardware, because I've been hardware, software service, NAI, I don't care what combination you put together. Just make sure that combination is actually solving a real problem. So product market fit, of course, is what everybody's looking for. And companies waste so much time chasing technology that don't actually solve real problems. No, I don't, I've never worked for a hardcore R&D company like 3M or some of the others that have a dedicated, you know, our last company, we did have R&D and we did dedicate something. So some of what I'm saying is inappropriate for certain companies, but frankly, most companies are not strong R&D companies, I guess in pharmaceuticals, but that'd be an exception, but for a lot of companies, that's not the case. And so you're cobbling together a bunch of stuff, inventing a few things, pushing them to solve a real problem. Make sure you're solving a real problem because if you're not, you might get some early adopters, but you're not really going to get to the next step. And so that's the next thing I'd say. And the last thing I'd say is, so it's all about sales. You're not going to get sales with good products to solve problems. And the last thing I'd say right. is you really can't do it by yourselves. You, you really make sure you've got some good people that are in it whether however big the company is, that you can really just delegate and trust things to. And if you don't have that core coaching staff, boy, it's really tough to go faster because if they're all coming through one man or one woman or a person, it just doesn't scale. And generally, there are exceptions, but generally. So I think hiring the right team, these are mom and apple pie kind of things, but that's honestly what makes the difference. And do it faster than everybody else. Speed is the only sustainable competitive differentiation in business. That's the, that's one of our mantras. Right. And how does speed bump up against quality? There's the classics or you can have it cheap, you can have it good, or you can have it fast. Choose two. Yeah. I don't necessarily believe that, even though actually that same thing is on a whiteboard, I'm sure in our business, it's, I've heard it a thousand times. Look, for me, you can go too fast in quality craters, but we generally know when that moment is like intuitively and we can actually measure it. Otherwise, speed is great for getting up the learning curve and continuously improving. So I want to be, look, if you're going to, if we're going to do something 40 times and you're going to make four mistakes, well, let's get those over as quickly as possible. Because I know in the next 40, if we continuously improve, if we have the Kaizen culture, then I'm going to make two mistakes. And then by the time I'm done with 80, I'm going to make one mistake. So for me, speed is about getting up the learning curve as quickly as possible to drive the continuous improvements that we all hope to have in the business to consistently go faster and deliver that consistent experience for our clients, which is what we all want. At some point, you're going too fast, right? And it's there's not a magical moment. We generally know when that is. But we can also go online and watch those videos of homes being built with decent quality in two to three hours to make the point. And so I think if you have a good operational ethos inside of your company, and we do, we've got people with manufacturing background in the company, and, and you apply that violently, for me, speed is about getting up that learning curve. If you get up the learning curve and you have a culture of continuous improvement, the team will make the improvements that you need to, be, need to make to consistently hold that speed, especially when inevitably your, your competitors come out with some whiz-bang feature that you don't have, and you're not going to have. And so if I'm faster and I get them to the result, then I'm still in the game. Yeah. And I think about. So qual I'm sorry. Quality to me is a byproduct of speed if you do it right. Yeah. I get that. I think about the, you know, tolerance for errors being like, we just know that's going to be the case. And I, I don't think of it as we aren't 
going to make mistakes. It's how do I limit the impact of the mistake that I'm making? Because every order of magnitude I grow revenue, I can effectively be one order of magnitude or two less on the cost of the thing I just screwed up and it has same relative impact. So it's like, what's your margin for I'm going to screw shit up because I'm, you know, so, <laughs> and that's yeah. And so it's different by industry. And in my last company, we were a safety business. If we messed things up, people died. So big deal. We were in the gas detection space. And so our tolerance was extremely low or extremely high. So just aerospace, nuclear safety, you can't make mistakes or people are going to die. That's a big deal. And now I'm in contracts. Also a big deal. Also important. However, if you word your governing law provision a little bit different than me, does that really introduce a ton of risk into your business? Probably not. Same is true in a lot of these provisions. Same is true in contracts in general. Are there some provisions that are more important than others? Yes. So we don't measure the legal industry at all today. Barely. Right? We have no idea. It's called a credence good. Only the supplier knows if you got good quality, if you pay too much, and if, if you should buy from me again. I have no idea, right? I, I really don't know as the consumer of the business. There's a level of tolerance here as much lower than, say, the gas detection business or the aerospace business or the nuclear business. From my perspective, it's not a perfect chart, but hey, I can go faster. I can go ahead and make those mistakes because I can live with them and the client can live with them as long as I continuously improve. The client will be there right with me because frankly, they're used to contracts that are full of mistakes anyway. It's not like I'm going to change that reality until I change that reality. But that's not an aerospace company, right? You can't have planes falling out of the sky. You've got to make sure that your tolerances are much higher there. It depends. But in all situations, speed is really about at-bats. If I can get more at-bats, I'm going to learn and then I can make continuous improvements that then drive my quality. How much of experience plays into it? You know, it's sort of that uh, innate, I have seen things, I can't even process why I have the gut reaction as a leader. I just know I've seen enough things and that feels off versus the challenges that you can measure and you know I'm out of tolerance with. Do you, do you find or think about that at all? I think we think about it a lot as our company, as we transition, we're a growth stage company now, and we're putting a lot of the metrics in place for really the first time that we've, we've seen in our past lives, but have never had a chance to put in place for legal sifter because we've just not been that big and haven't devoted the time. And you're always trying to balance the effort it takes to measure something versus can I just make this decision? Cause I know what the answer is, particularly in a small company, in a larger company, you have more resources, you have more time. It's, but I, I think it's a healthy mix. That's my answer. I'll tell you now, having been in larger established companies and now been an entrepreneur for the last eight years, I'll tell you, I could never have done personally, there are smarter people than me, could have never have done what I did in the last eight years if I didn't have the 20, 15, 20 years of experience prior to that. I, I couldn't imagine doing what I've been doing the last eight years at age 25, 26, 27. And that is, that's not ages. I just didn't know. I just didn't understand. And so I think so much of, at least as a small company, so much of it is based on experience and you're testing hypotheses quickly and maybe you'll get some metrics that'll validate that, but you got to go and you got to make some guesses. And so you're really leaning heavily on experience. As you get bigger and you've got more established systems, the system itself is not oscillating as much because you figured it out and now you're just trying to groove it. Now those metrics are really 
much more important because you can wring those efficient out of the delivery system or, or whatever. I have the time and the energy to do it because I've got the overhead from the revenues that are coming in. It's just, these are, it shifts. And I think as you get bigger, that shifts more from, I don't really want to be blind on my bed all the time. Let's see what the business tells me. And so I think what do the metrics say are super important the bigger you get. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. What are the core KPIs that when you start to realize I need to measure what core KPIs jump out to you that, how, how do I know I'm at that stage? And businesses reach that at different velocities and based on the type of business, but how do I know when I should start tracking something and what might that be? Yeah. <laughs> so if I'm a status business, those are out there. I want to know what my churn numbers are. I want to understand logo churn and I want to understand the revenue churn. And in my growing my business, Legal Citra has had a great story. We absolutely churn clients every year more than I want, but we have had net negative churn or whatever. And people call it different things, but our existing clients end up buying more from us to overtake that churn. So if you ask me, why did we get funded? One of the reasons we got funded is because we were able to show over many years that despite clients that fall off, the existing clients that remain before I had any prospects uh, still grow the business. They still grow over and above what we lost. So the business still grows. That's really strong. And we have long-term contracts and all these metrics. So from that perspective, understanding those churn metrics are super important. And those are out there. And then you, of course, you want to know what your cost of acquisition looks like and the long-term value of your clients, the LTV to CAC on the SaaS business. But if I'm not a SaaS business, I'm certainly watching my gross margins. Am I getting to where I need to be? You may choose to be unprofitable. My point is to hover way back up from some of those little sound bites is we say to our functions, I want to see one leading, leading indicator and one lagging indicator that you feel indicates or tells me how this group is doing. So if I got one leading and one lagging on every function of the business, and then a couple that hover up on top, that's probably pretty good. And if you have leaders in the business that understand whatever function or team or whatever they're organized around, if they can identify one leading and one lagging that above all others tell you how things are going, that's probably a good place to start. And if you had eight major functions or groups in your company and you had 16 major measurements and you had four more on top of that, two leading, two lagging, that's 20 things to look at. That's a lot of things to look at. And you can probably get a pretty good sense of how things are going, particularly if you ask your people what's most important. And so that's how we think about it. So you can't start that too early. I think you can stick with the one leading, one lagging for as long as you can if you're small. Well, I, I think from the beginning, to me, it's just not revenue at all costs, but revenue is... Yeah. And you talk about sales. And I think that's really what you mean there. It's like revenue is the gas, right? And you just can't, absent anything else, we need customers paying us money so we can even think about the other things. And uh, that sounds pedantic. How many businesses have you seen? I All the time I see it, it's like, why is no one here thinking about making any money? <laughs> Not profit, like money at all. <laughs> like it doesn't matter what we do if we don't get paid. Yeah, I'm with you. I've not understood that. I've long since learned that you can be unprofitable for years and that makes sense. Just look at, again, Salesforce and Amazon even and their core business. And that's fine. I think there's a model for that and that makes intuitive sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me in general, unless you're an R&D company, you're trying to get through FDA. There are exceptions, okay? But in general, for most businesses, if you're not pulling in any top line revenue, that's a warning sign. Now we've resisted this in our business. There have been times in our specific business, hey, you've built a tool that reads contracts and gives advice. 
give that away to the world. Do a freemium model. And maybe it's a mistake that we haven't done there. Maybe that's my fault. I certainly have lots of people that think we should and still do it. And we haven't done it yet. And I don't know that we're going to do it in 2024 and we may never do it. We'll see. That may be a complete error. It may be a complete error judgment. We have decided, we, we're down on the side of let's get some people to pay us money for this and let's see how it goes. But I don't know. I personally, my gut's on your side. I'm not a, I think there are certain services like a, I don't know, like a high viral coefficient, like a Dropbox or something, give it away because I get it to stop it into, you know, every business because you can't avoid it. But yours is a highly technical and service oriented thing. And it costs a lot of money to deliver and it has obvious values for what it's worth. You didn't come on here for my advice, but I'm with you. Great. Fantastic insights. Before we go, I, I would like to ask, okay, so you are Kevin Miller in your seat with your experiences running your business as a leader of B2B there, what should, from your perspective, be on every other leader's radar, just that your unique perspective brings and hey, pay attention to this. This is going to matter a lot in the next two years. Well, I do think the, I mean, I'm an AI company or a core, and I do think everything that's going on in AI is a big deal. It's of course there's a hype cycle and of course it's out ahead of itself and out over its skis. But this is another inflection point or another step change or whatever word you want to use. We're in another gear now. And this stuff can do a little bit more, in some cases, a lot of bit more than it could do a couple of years ago. And certainly six, seven, eight years ago. And in most businesses, there's an application. And so if the good news is if, so one, I would, I would pay attention. And two... You business leader out there who might or may not be listening to me, how to drive change in your business if you've had success. And introducing AI behind the scenes in front of your clients, it's just, a ch it's just another change to, to manage. And so if you follow good change, I'm a big fan of John Cotter, K-O-T-R, and kind of his eight-step process for driving change. That's really served me well as a leader. AI, it's not about the AI. It's about, can you get the shift in your culture? If you need to drive a shift in the culture or the client's culture, to adopt this technology in a way that actually solves problems, you'll find that just because this is highly technical and really cool stuff, and there are new things to think about, if you just follow good change methodology and good product management methodology, you'll figure it out. I guess my big message is, is it as big as the internet explosion we saw in the 90s? I don't know. I've been in the AI space for a long time and we actually had it in my last company. I've been in and around it since 2006. So it's not necessarily new to me or some of our team members, but this step change that we saw in November of last year with OpenAI and ChatGPT, yeah, it is another step change. It surprised a lot of us to the good. And if I'm any company, I'm putting somebody on this to see how they can use this new capability. Because your mental models for how software has helped you in the past may not be appropriate for 2023 and 2024. Fantastic. I love it. <laughs> Kevin, thank you. Insights are awesome. Thank you for spending the time with us. I know you got a busy schedule. You're a CEO. You got things to do. So thank you for coming out and sharing. Anybody that's resonating in the audience wants to reach out to you or, or the business, How? what are the best channels to do that? Legalsifter.com. Just click on help or click on chat, or you can reach me directly at Kevin and legalsifter.com and would be happy to talk to you about your contract pain and how we can help. Fantastic. 
thank you so much for coming out. Really appreciate it.